See, there's much to learn theologically from Genesis 1-1 and to just understand that in the beginning, God existed. When we consider the magnitude of God. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 38. Job 38, you probably think, well, wait a minute, I thought we are beginning the book of Genesis today, and you are correct. But we want to begin uh, today with a scripture reading to set up uh, this new study. So Job chapter 38, we're going to begin in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And then turning to Job chapter 40, Verse 1, and the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. This is God's word. Father, we pray that you would bless our study now as we open up the scriptures. We ask that we would have the same humble posture that in your response to Job's diatribe there in Job 38, dressing him like a man and telling him or asking him, where were you? Lord, certainly his response of humility is the response we want because, Lord, the implied answer is, where were we? We were not yet formed. And so, Lord, there is none like you in the heavens, in the earth. We thank you that we have the privilege of opening the book of Genesis this morning, and we ask that you would be glorified, that you would use this series, this study, not only today but through this entire book, to sanctify us, to draw us near to you, to instruct us, Lord, that you would fill our minds with truth, with information, Lord, but that you'd fill our hearts with transformation. Lord, we thank you that we can look at the creation, but we can also realize we are a new creation in Christ. So, Lord, would you now bless this time as we study your word? Would you help us by the Spirit to understand and apply this text? and Genesis 1, 1, and 2. For your glory, for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We begin our much-anticipated new study exposition in the book of Genesis. And if you're new here, that is the easiest book in the Bible to find. So go ahead and flip over to Genesis chapter 1. I wanted to begin our series with that uh, statement, that question from uh, the book of Job to just put us in the right posture as we consider uh, the Creator. And what I want to do this morning as we open up the book of Genesis is quote from Psalm 11.3. And this is a really great foundational verse to set up this foundational study. 
Psalm 11.3 asks a question. And the question is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it's a valid question. If you and I were to set out to build a new church campus, which of course we're looking at properties, we're not necessarily looking at building, but if the Lord would provide that and we found property, we would get together with a team and we'd say, okay, let's, let's find a builder to build a foundation. Without that foundation, it doesn't matter how much reinforcement you have for building materials, you have the most important piece missing without a foundation. Jesus used this as an illustration in Matthew 7 to speak about those who hear his words and who do nothing about it. They don't build their life upon his word. They build their life apart from his word. They're like a house that endures wind and waves. And if it has a foundation, it'll stand firm. But if not, it's going to be destroyed. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When we consider foundations, we think about our Christian faith. And the foundation of our faith is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're about to celebrate Easter in just a few weeks. And we're going to be reminded, as we are every week, though, that the the keystone, the cornerstone of the Christian faith is the resurrection. We're going to be reminded of that. So if we remove the resurrection, if we remove the foundation, then what do we have for Christianity? We have a great rabbi who said some paradoxical things, and he's buried somewhere in the Middle East. And thus, everything we believe is a lie. We are, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we are to be pitied among all men. We should be thrown the world's biggest pity party if there's no resurrection. The foundation of this church is not the pastors. The foundation of this church is the word of God. It's the gospel. And the foundation of the word of God is the book of Genesis. If we remove the word of God from the church, then we have no foundation to stand on. We have no authority to build our church or our lives upon. If we remove the book of Genesis from the scriptures, then we lose the scriptures. You see, if people can dismiss this book we're about to study as that's just fiction, that's just folklore, that's just legend, then the rest of the Bible becomes very easy to dismiss. If this foundational book in our canon of scripture is not canon, or it is something we can look with a critical eye at and just sweep away, well, then we can allow other perspectives to begin to rule and guide our conscience. It happens very quickly. So just take this uh, series of thoughts for a moment. If there's no creator, well, then 27 of the 66 books within the Bible are in jeopardy because God is called the creator in every genre from the Pentateuch to the historical books to the poetry books to the prophets to the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st Timothy, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Peter, and Revelation. If there's no creator, then we can just throw those books out because they're false. If there's no literal Adam that we read about in, uh, which we'll definitely read about in Genesis 2 and 3, if there's no literal Adam, that's a problem. And we just spend an hour in Romans. We might as well toss Romans out because Romans 5 speaks of or hinges the redemptive work of our federal head Christ, the second Adam, on the first Adam. There must be a literal first Adam. And so we lose the book of Romans. If we lose the creation of male and female in the image of God, that we've been created in the Imago Dei, um, does that sound like a problem? If we lose that, well, that is a problem. We lose the worth, we lose the dignity, we lose the value of every single human being. 
And thus, what do we do? We rely on the government to define personhood. We rely on our gifting to say, I have validity, I have worth, I have value because of what I do. And yet, instead of certain inalienable rights endowed to us as his image bearers, we have no reason to give any worth to any human. So then there's no reason to not take another life. If it's convenient to me to take your life, if you're in my way, um, no loss incurred, no consequence. If we lose the Imago Dei. Uh, If we lose the creation, as we'll see next week, of male and female, then we lose this assertion of gender. And thus we can define gender however we feel like. Today I'm a male, tomorrow I'm intersex, Thursday I'm he, him, and this weekend I might be they, them. It doesn't really matter because there is no gender. There is no male and female. If there's no marriage instituted by God between husband and wife, then I can just define marriage how I want. Uh, I just have two people coming together to express their love. doesn't matter who they are. In fact, in October 2021, a man married his rice cooker. This is a true story. He actually proposed and married his rice cooker. He said his wife was fair, quiet, and knows how to cook. Um, He divorced her a few days later. I'm not going to insert any jokes about pressure in marriage or anything like that. Uh, But you can just define and make fun of marriage. That's what it's become. It's become a joke uh, to many people rather than something God has instituted to bring him glory uh, in the relationship the church has with his son. If there's no law, no sin, no Satan, no curse, then how can we look around at this world and explain the decay, the moral evil, the chaos that exists in the world? It's just mother nature. It's just random chance, and it's cruel, and it's unrelenting. If we have no common ancestor, then these racial differences that we hear about, that we see people leaning into, then we we realize we really are far more separated than we perceived ourselves to be. And rather than being people groups who all descended from the same family, who have the same lineage, one race, the human race, then... We really should be discriminatory. We, should, we really should lean into our tribe and our people and, and fight to maintain our own rights. If we're not created by a loving and just God, then what are we? We're random mutations who got a few billion lucky breaks, but there's no true purpose or meaning in life or in death. There's, there's not much meaning if someone who was stardust eventually turned into a fish and then eventually turned into Uncle Gary. There's really, there's really no point to that person's existence. If we're merely advanced animals, well, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You see why Genesis is such a relevant and important and critical book. So in the canon of Scripture, Genesis holds a very critical place. The book is either directly quoted or referenced almost 200 times in the New Testament. And other than the Psalms, Jesus quoted from the book of Genesis more than any other Old Testament book. And this affirms how important he felt it to be. In fact, in John 5, here's what Jesus says. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. There's a statement, by the way, for a whole sermon series. He wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses, of course, was the writer of Genesis. So Jesus' logic is you can't be consistent in saying you believe Jesus, but you dismiss the book of Genesis. And yet when we talk with unbelievers, you just mention the book of Genesis. Mention the creation or creator, 
and this will attract more eye rolls or scoffing than pretty much any other position Christianity seeks to hold. In fact, many people dismiss the term Christian scientist as a beginning of a joke or a contradiction in terms. So as we approach this study, is this a collection of myths, uh, etiologies, or is Genesis to be taken as historical? It is part of the law of God, though there's little content within it that's legal. It still lays out the foundation for Exodus through Deuteronomy, as well as the rest of the Old Testament and the entire Bible itself. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to jot some things down. And we do have the scripture journals sold out today, so we'll have some more available next week. But if you're taking notes, the word Genesis comes from the Greek word, which means beginnings or origins. So it is a book, literally, of beginnings. And it's fascinating how many things originate actually from the book of Genesis. Uh, the first specifically 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, I am a former science teacher and science nerd. I did say former, though. I'm a former science nerd and science teacher, and I love studying Genesis because of all of the ologies that we learn about. So just taking notes, we learn about cosmology. Cosmology is the study of the origins of the universe. We'll look at that today and next week. We learn about biology, the study of life, and we'll definitely lean into that next week. We learn about geology, which is the study of the earth's physical structure and substance and processes. We learn about anthropology, which of course is women shopping at an overpriced store at the mall, things you don't really need. But no, we learn about mankind and where man comes from. Not only these, but notice what else we learn. We learn about the origins of identity, gender, sexuality, work, ethnicity, marriage, the family, and sin. We learn about sacrifices and redemption. We're going to see cities and how they were formed and trade and agriculture music, worship, and languages, and all of that from the first 11 chapters. Genesis is a critically important book because it lays out the foundation for much of our Christian doctrine. So with that in mind, look with me at Genesis 1.1, and we're going to just exposit the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now let's look at verse 1 again with those first four words. Someone told me this week they used to teach their kids these are the first uh, or the most important four words in the Bible. And I like that. In the beginning, God. These are words that shape this entire book and the entire scripture. In the beginning, God. Before any nation existed, God. Before the earth itself had been formed, God. Before Mars or Jupiter or the sun or the Milky Way galaxy, before any star or solar system was spoken into being, God. God was there. If we take the tape, anyone remember the tape? You used to have tapes, remember that? You used to push play on the Walkman. So you push play. If you hit rewind on the tape and we rewind the tape all the way to the very beginning, Sorry, I'm an 80s boy. It is what it is. So we rewind the tape all the way back to the beginning. What do we find? At the start of the tape, we find an eternal, infinite, all-powerful, and independent triune being who didn't even need the tape, who exists apart from the tape. Albert Moeller says this. He says, in the beginning, God, if we truly grasp this opening phrase of Scripture, the rest of our theological conviction will fall rightly into place. If we 
fail to truly understand these opening words, we may find ourselves on the quick road to idolatry. Just think about how the scriptures now set apart with four words Christianity from the other ologies in this world. So this statement denies atheism with its doctrine of no God. This statement denies polytheism with its statement of many gods. It denies pantheism with the doctrine of making nature God. In the beginning, God denies fatalism with this doctrine of random chance. And it denies materialism, which asserts the eternity of matter. You see, there's much to learn theologically from Genesis 1-1 and to just understand that in the beginning, God existed. When we consider the magnitude of God, I want to just jot down three attributes when we consider the fact that God stands apart from creation. So there's many more than we can add to this uh, for his attributes, but let's just look at three of them for a minute as we dive into this text. So the first is the aseity of God. The aseity of God is just a fancy word that means self-existence. God exists apart from creation. He is self-existent. Nothing brought him into existence. Now, if you keep leaning into that thought, your brain will start to hurt. This is hard to quantify for our finite minds. Uh, there wasn't in the beginning God and emptiness because emptiness is something. So from eternity, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes the aseity of God is connected to the eternality of God. Um, psalm 90 verse 2 speaks of this. Moses there in his psalm says, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. The aseity of God speaks of the fact that he just exists on his own. No beginning, no created one. He's uncreated. No end. He didn't come into being. He is the I am. Uh, to quote one theologian, God has the ground of his existence within himself. And so he is life. But secondly, we learn here in the beginning, God, this speaks of the independence of God. God is independent, meaning he's unique and distinct from creation. So there's two categories that exist. There's creator and there's creation. God exists independently, and he does not rely on his creation. Now, think about you and I. We are very different. We fully rely on creation. You and I can't live more than 40 days without food. Some of us, 40 minutes. Can't live 40 days without food. We can't live three days without water. We can't live five minutes, typically, without oxygen. We rely on these things, these created things, for our bios, for biology. God doesn't require anything for biology, for existence. The earth relies on the sun to sustain life. If we take away our star, well, we're going we're gonna to die. Life will end. Some creatures rely on other creatures in symbiosis. Uh, and you take away one and the other will not survive like Sonny without share. It just is not going to happen. A Yankees fan without the pinstripe players. If you have no team, you have no fans. So you rely on something to sustain you. Not so with Yahweh. God wasn't lonely Father, Son, and Spirit. So let's create, some worship songs kind of lean that way. God wasn't lonely. Well, I just need someone to spend time with. Let me create people. Oh, now I have someone to talk to in the garden. That wasn't the idea at all. Um, I need a pet. Let me create Adam. That wasn't the idea. Acts 17, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, we just saying that, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. No, when we go to the beginning and we see in the beginning God, we realize Father, Son, and Spirit had all the fellowship that was needed within the Godhead. Perfect, loving, relational unity. Amen. It is nice to be appreciated. And yet, God is independent. And so then we see number three, that God is infinite. So God doesn't need energy. He doesn't need matter. He doesn't need life. Jesus said in 526, the Father has life within himself. And so therefore, God is infinite. God is everlasting. God doesn't need a nap. As we'll see next week, as we look at the days of creation and the Sabbath, God didn't need the Sabbath because he needed a day off because he was tired. He didn't need me time. No, God is, has infinite knowledge. He has infinite power. He has infinite presence. Often we'll use the omni, which I believe was coined a little bit by Thomas Aquinas, but the omni, whatever, omnipotence or omniscience. God is infinite. Uh, and so Isaiah said this. He asked this question, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God. He's infinite. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So before creation was, in the beginning, the infinite, independent, self-existent God was there. I mean, we could spend more time speaking about how God was wise, how he was good, how he is unchanging, but time doesn't permit. God, in the beginning, God. The word for God there, if you want to circle that, fourth word into uh, verse 1 in our scripture. Um, it's not a philosophical statement. It's an axiom. And this is not describing, uh, as some in the more of the spiritual but not religious crowd would say today, the, uh, the people who would say, well, you know, I, I approach God and, and what I mean by God is, and then they fill in the blank. We, we don't mean that at all. This is not describing some sort of deistic concept of a detached God or mother nature uh, or all of, uh, you know, all of creation existing as nature is God. This isn't the history channel alien theory of an extraterrestrial higher intelligence that seeded the earth and began with an intelligent design to kick off evolution. Now, this word for God is a very descriptive word. It's the word Elohim. And it contains the Hebrew root, root word El, which is singular, almost with the definite article, the God. But it's constructed to be pluralistic in nature. Very complex word. Um, you could almost communicate it as the God who is more than one. If you were to really write out Elohim, it's the God who's more than one. Uh, Adam Clark quoted a rabbi who said, come and see the mystery. This is a rabbi. Come and see the mystery of the word Elohim. There are three degrees. In each degree by itself alone and yet notwithstanding they are all one and joined together in one and are not divided from each other. You can see how that caused great confusion to the Jews who in Deuteronomy 6 say there's one God and yet Elohim seems to be that there's three in one. And yet Adam Clark says he must be strangely prejudiced indeed who cannot see that the doctrine of a trinity and of a trinity in unity is expressed in the above words. So notice with me, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we look at that, just that one text, and we look at that from a Trinitarian perspective, then we have to understand that Godhead is here in these words. It's important to point out that the Son of God and the Spirit of God, 
We're actively at work in creation with the Father. Louis Burkhoff says, all things are at once out of the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. In general, it may be said that being is out of the Father, thought or the idea is out of the Son, and life out of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a little too narrow, but I get what he's saying. Since the Father takes the initiative in the work of creation, it's often ascribed to him economically. But that would be incorrect. If we said, oh, in the beginning, God is just the Father. The Father created the heavens and the earth. We'd be mistaken. Um, Explicitly in verse 2, we see the Spirit. So the Spirit is here. And then from passages like Ephesians 3.9, we understand the Father was the initiator. But consider these verses in the New Testament about the Son. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And here's the key part. All things were made through him, through Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 17, 5. This is Jesus' prayer. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The Son existed from the very beginning. John 17, 24, he said, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then in Colossians 1, 16, probably the most explicit place in the New Testament, it says, for by him, all things, this is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. But is that everything? Uh, Paul says, yeah, all things were created through him and created for him. And so in the beginning, you could say this, in the beginning, the infinite, self-existent, independent, triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created the heavens and the earth. We'll look at this more next week, but with simply a word, God spoke the universe into existence. In fact, if you look in verse 3, a little teaser for next week, and God said, let there be light. And notice what it says, and there was light. All of creation on days one through six with just a a word spoken. There is one particular creation that uh, God forms instead of speaks. And we'll look at that in a few weeks. But just think about that. With just a word, God speaks Canis Majoris, and there it is. God speaks Saturn, and there it is. God speaks Nitrogen. God speaks Narwhal, and there it is. Now, I know how fancy we are with our Siri and our Google and our Alexa, and we can just say, hey, play music. Or we can say, what time is it? Or what's the weather going to be like? Or we could say, set the, the thermostat to 72 degrees. And we think we're all fancy. I just set it, and it happened. Well, you know, honestly, without the technology, you're going to look foolish. Try to do that without your phone. <clears throat> we rely on these things. And God, in contrast to man, can create uh, the phrases ex nihilo, And so I want to uh, walk through this idea for a minute. The idea of ex nihilo means to create from nothing. Nothing in creation can mimic ex nihilo, to just create from nothing. And so we all need a canvas and we all need paint supplies to work with. But God didn't need that. God just speaks light and then there's light. As we opened with Job 38, God's question to Job was, where were you? When I laid this foundation, and the implied answer was, I wasn't created yet. I wasn't here yet. And so when we read, in the beginning, God created, there are two words in the Hebrew that we could use for create. And I just want to point this out for a few moments. So this could say asa, 
which is the Hebrew word which means to make something out of pre-existing material. Uh, asa, to take something and then to, to form it, to create it. Um, this building that we're in right now was asa. It was created from pre-existing materials. It wasn't always a church building. I don't know if you knew this, but this used to be an elk's lodge. <clears throat> and it was filled with elks, literally, on the wall, <laughs> and tinsel, and um, people drinking. And so we, we redeemed it for God's glory. In fact, the, uh, the liquor closet is now my office. And so uh, it, it was obviously redeemed. Um, but that's not the word that's used here. The word is not that God took some of the stuff that was all compacted within uh, you know, this one tightly knit <clears throat> bit of matter and, and God let there, be, let there be a big bang and God took it and exploded it out. He took pre-existing materials and, and created, fashioned something from it. Now the word is bara and bara means to make something from nothing or out of nothing. And this word bara is used 44 times in the Old Testament. It's always and exclusively only used of God because only God can bara. God alone can produce something fundamentally new. You and I have to rely on matter or pre-existing materials. In fact, there's a funny story of an atheist who, who uh, proves this point, but it, this atheist challenged God to a cloning duel. And the atheist proudly declared, I can create everything you can create. And so God created a lamb. The atheist took the DNA from the lamb and then cloned his own lamb. And God said, well, that's impressive, but can you create a man from dirt? And so the atheists pulled all the brilliant scientists from around the world, and they worked feverishly for around 40 years. They finally encoded DNA and created a human from a pile of dirt. And when he was done, he said, see, I can do what you did. And God said, hold on, time out. You need your own dirt. <laughs> you have to create your own dirt. And that's impossible. Man doesn't have this ability. We need pre-existing materials. We need matter. God doesn't need matter. He can bara, create out of nothing. But the method that he uses to do this is speech. He speaks. We'll lean into that a little bit next week. Herbert Spencer was a notably a contemporary of Darwin, and he was arguably Darwin's or Darwinian theory's biggest fan, the biggest supporter, the most enthusiastic uh, promoter. Herbert Spencer, here's what he said. He said, as an evolutionary scientist, everything fits into one of these five categories, time, force, action, space, and matter. Isn't that interesting? We're going to go with that. Look, look again at verse 1. In the beginning, there's time. God, there's force. Created, there's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, there's matter. Everything scientifically we see right here in the very first verse. Everything categorized in 1903 was written thousands of years before science found it out. The Bible says God created everything. And in saying that, the Bible gives us all the categories that exist. And God did this out of and from nothing. God is a communicating God. And the very first thing that he does is he speaks creation into existence. Now, before he does that, though, uh, the earth, you could say, is a blank canvas. So notice with me verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face 
of the waters. So for a minute, let me just unpack this. There's no form, thus no fullness. And that's about to change. We'll see that next week with the days of creation. But just notice with me, the form of light and dark is created day one, and then it's filled with sun and moon on day four. So there's a parallel between day one and day four, form and fullness. The form of sea and sky is created day two, and it's going to be filled on day five with marine and air creatures. So form and fullness. The form of fertile earth is created day three, and it will be filled with land creatures or animals on day six. And so the earth was, it was uh, without form and it was void. Another way of translating that is that it was uncultivated, it was uninhabited. So God needed to shape creation in such a way that the chaos that could exist would be interrupted by his presence. And that's what we see here in verse two. The spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the face of the waters. Now, some people read a lot into verses 1 and, or really between verses 1 and verse 2, or they may misread verse 2. Verse two. Again, we have to understand this is, this is Hebrew language uh, that is a bit poetic, but when he speaks about the earth being without form and void, some people read into that and they go, oh, it became without form and void. So it was good, God created it, but now it was unraveled through some sort of process or war. And so what a lot of people do is they read a time gap between verse 1 and verse 2. That God created in verse 1, but that's when Satan fell. So there's war in heaven and earth and billions of years of evolution, transitional species, decay, destruction. Then in verse 2, God sort of recreates his creation. Now that theory is known as the gap theory or you could call it the ruin and reconstruction theory. And it tries to do something that a lot of people feel compelled to do. It tries to reconcile the Bible and evolutionary theory. Let me squeeze billions of years in somewhere in the creation narrative. Now, there's a lot of problems with the gap theory. The easiest one to point out is that we have death before sin. And we find in Genesis 3 that death enters the world Romans 5.14 explicitly says there was death from Adam onward. And so the other way to argue is that in Genesis 2, God declares everything he's created is very good. So we have, according to the gap theory, eons and ages of death and decay and destruction. Doesn't sound very good. Sounds a little bit like Ukraine right now. Death, decay, destruction. And no one in Ukraine is saying what's happening is very good. That's the furthest description you would use. So the reality is there is no gap. The Jews didn't see a gap here. That's something that we've added in the last, it's a contemporary edition, the last 100, 150 years. And so uh, the only reason you would try to read that in is to try to capitulate to evolutionary ideas. And part of my intention with our series here in Genesis is to tear down Darwinian evolution with the truth of scripture, with logic, with scientific evidence. And so I want to encourage you, if you are someone who leans into evolution, you were raised that way, trained that way, and you're, you're a, a proponent of it, I want you to at me. I want you to talk to me. Let's, let's discuss this. Speak with the pastors. We would love to, uh, to spend some time talking through uh, creation and what the scriptures say. But we're going to do that uh, with science and with scripture. Um, as we apply this today... Um, I just want to consider a verse in the New Testament that sheds some light 
um, for us about creation and about faith. Okay, because some people say, hey, you know what? We don't need to look at science at all. We don't need to look at, at, um, at the scientific method whatsoever. And so we just need to come to Scripture with empty heads. And, and we would, of course, we would reject that notion. Where science seems to be conflicting with the Scripture, well, of course, we're going to put Scripture ahead of science. But much of the scientific breakthrough that occurred in the last two, three, four hundred years um, most of it was led by men and women who were believers, who wanted to unpack science because God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. The word science means to know or knowledge. And, and so um, I, I want to make sure that we, we approach this rightly. So real quick with me, um, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to walk through this concept of what it means to have faith as we approach uh, this topic. So turn with me to Hebrews 11. You've probably heard of Hebrews 11. It's the hall of faith, some people call it. And in verse 1, we get the definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Did that clear it up for you? It didn't for me when I was in high school. What does that mean? It never made any sense. Well, what is the definition of faith? We talk about faith, we have to understand there's three aspects to faith. We have the content of our faith. We have the conviction of our faith. We have reliance. So the content of our faith, the object of our faith, ultimately is Jesus. Theologians call this notitia, the content. Content of our faith is important. But there's also the conviction of our faith, the conviction that the content is true. And theologians call this a census. So we have notitia, that is what I believe, the actual facts, and then a census, this conviction that, yeah, what I believe is true. And that seems to be what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of the things you've not seen. And yet just knowing or believing the content of the Christian faith from a head knowledge perspective is not enough. James 2.19 says demons have good theology, maybe even better theology than people. They know who Jesus is, but... Just knowing the content isn't enough. We need reliance, and theologians call that fiducia. We need a personal trust in Christ alone for salvation. So we have the content, we have the conviction, and then we lean our lives upon that. So with that in mind, look at verse 2. By faith, the people of old receive their commendation. We see those people of old throughout this chapter. But look how verse 3 starts off. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The universe was created by the word of God. And we understand that by faith. The key factor that we need to focus on in creation is not the age of the earth. Though I know a lot of us are nerdy about that. We love to talk about the age of the earth and exactly how long was it. No, we, we have to understand that the key factor here is that God created ex nihilo, that he created the universe from nothing, from a word. No big bang was needed. No evolutionary processes were required, just a word. So for us this morning, as we apply this foundational text in Genesis, I just want to remind us, for us, that we would receive God's word by faith. We trust in the creation narrative. We believe in six literal days. And we believe that God created ex nihilo with the word because to believe anything else will cast shade on the rest of God's revelation. 
So the application for us this morning to apply this, the application is not get in an argument with an atheist. That's not the application, okay? The application is this. Will you trust God's word or will you question it? You see, there's an alternative response. And Romans 1, as we studied it last year, tells us what that is. There's an alternative response. Paul said to the Romans, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, those who suppress the truth with their ungodliness and unrighteousness, they don't look at creation and see the order and the design and the care expressed by a loving and good creator. They, they inexcusably become fools and exchange God's glory for created things. And so right out of the gate, an eternal creator seeks to form and fashion creation for his good pleasure. And how does that creation respond? Right out of the gate, is it submission? Is it worship? Is it obedience? Is it loyalty? Is it delight? Well, we know the story, don't we? You could say Genesis 1 through 11 is about four important events. It's about creation and then the fall, the flood, and Babel. Do you see what's happening here? Over and over and over, man stands in defiance against a loving creator. God creates, God reveals, God blesses. What does man do? Man rebels. What ensues? Judgment. A curse and a banishment from Eden. God says to man, fill the earth and subdue it. Make sure that there's image bearers who keep covenant that go out into all the world. And what does man do? Man rebels and fills the earth, not with goodness, but with violence. What ensues? Judgment, a global catastrophic flood. God after that says, spread out and expand so the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of my glory. And what does man do? Man rebels and congregates at Babel to make a name not of God, but of myself. What ensues? Judgment. We have the scattering of the nations because of these various tongues. So the book of Genesis begins in Eden, but it ends in Egypt. It begins with life, but it ends in a coffin. Throughout Genesis, we're going to see this theme of blessing and cursing. We're going to see this theme not only in Genesis, but all throughout Scripture until the book of Revelation. God's blessing comes to those who hear his word and receive it and obey. But there are there is an alternative response. There's the rebellious, the ungodly, the, the faithless, and the godless. And for them, there's judgment. But shall judgment have the final word? Well, no, right out of the gate, we also see the gospel beforehand. We see Genesis 3.15, a provision of a Messiah, right within the curse, that God will redeem. The seed of woman being struck will put an end to the curse. You see, that's where the rest of Genesis, moving on from verse or chapter 11, that's 1 through 11, but chapters 12 through 15 are not just random, haphazard. They highlight for us not four events, but four important men. We'll see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And in chapter 12, our focus zooms from all the nations to one nation, to one man, Abram, from whom the Semitic people come from, the Jews. And so, Another beginning we see in Genesis is the beginning of Israel. And from Israel, Romans 9, 5, according to the flesh is the Christ, who's God overall blessed forever. We're titling this sermon series, From Creation to New Creation. 
And, and every week we want to close the sermon considering how the foundational truths in, these, in this book can help shape us for the age to come. So the Bible begins with creation, but it ends with new creation. It begins in a garden, it ends with a glorious city. And in our own lives, before the active work of God, like creation, you and I were formless and we were void. We were bound in darkness, and yet the Spirit of God was doing a present work in our heart, even though we didn't even perceive him. Spurgeon said this was the first act of God, speaking of Genesis 1-2, in preparing this planet to be the abode of man, and the first act of grace in the soul is for the Spirit of God to move within it. How that Spirit of God comes there, we know not. We cannot tell how he acts, even as we cannot tell how the wind bloweth where it listeth. But until the Spirit of God moves upon the soul, nothing is done towards its new creation in Christ Jesus. Today you may be here and you're not a follower of Christ. You are on a course, but I believe God wants to interrupt the course of your life and bring you from formless to formed, from void where prior to fullness, the Spirit of God brings light where there's darkness. He brings fullness where there's void. He brings fulfillment where there was emptiness. And this is the active work of the Spirit of God. He transforms dead hearts and he makes us alive when we repent of our sin and we trust Christ as our Savior. So if you're not a follower of Jesus today, we implore you to repent and to trust Christ. One person remarked that the question or the conflict of the plot in Genesis is what happens when an irresistible force, in this case God, God's promise to bless his people, what happens when that irresistible force meets an immovable object, in this case, man's disobedience? And that's a plot conflict not only in Genesis, but in each of our lives. God has revealed himself through his creation. And we're to receive the truth of his creating word by faith. The question is, will you do that? Will you trust God's word or will you question it? That's what the serpent did with Adam and Eve, question God's word. We can trust God's word or we can question it in light of psychology. We can trust God's word or we can question it in light of critical race theory. We can trust God's word or we can question it in light of Darwinian evolution. We can trust God's word or we can question it in light of our own sinful, depraved, and prideful hearts. So church, as we study this foundational book, we refuse to do so with empty heads. No, we're gonna challenge evolution for sure with good science. And we're gonna study scripture with the science revealed to us by an omniscient creator who's all wise and all knowing. So may our minds be filled, may our spirits be quickened, may our hearts be stirred, may our intellect be roused as we enter this study by faith, amen? Amen, let's stand together. Let's pray. Our infinite, rich, and glorious God, Elohim, the universe with all its myriad creatures is yours, made by your word, upheld by your power, governed by your will. And though you are glorious and all-powerful and infinite and independent, you are also the Father of mercies. You're the God of all grace. You're the bestower of comfort. You're the protector of of the saved. And Lord, we thank you that you've been mindful of us, that you've visited us, that you've given us the scriptures, the joyful gospel, the savior of our souls. You haven't left us as orphans, even as we see here that the spirit of God was there 
brooding over the chaos, Lord, we know that you made us alive by the Spirit who's holy. And you produced effectual faith within us. You made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses. Lord, you regenerated us and you daily renew us. And you shed the Father's love abroad in our hearts by comforting and teaching us and even rebuking, correcting, and admonishing each one of us as we're sanctified in truth. And so, Lord, we pray that today your grace would be evident in each of our lives, not only today, but as we study this great book of beginnings. Lord, we ask for faith to read it, boldness to uphold it in a crooked and depraved generation who foments disdain for your word, that would dismiss it, discount it, or ridicule it, or replace it. But we, Lord, we're your people, and we hold fast to your word. And we pray your blessing on this study for our own edification and for the good of those that we'll share these precious truths with. Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would equip us with everything good that we may do your will, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people who agree say, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.